The legend of Mary Ellen Pleasant, an African-American entrepreneur and activist who lived during the antebellum era, has gained greater notoriety in recent years, although her story has been circulated since her death in the early 20th century. Most importantly, Pleasant is often said to have been an associate of John Brown and a benefactor who gave the abolitionists thousands of dollars prior to the Harper's Ferry Raid, an amount purportedly by today's standards that would amount to nearly $1 million. Pleasant claimed to have had a collaborative association with Brown, and her claims today have gotten good press too, even in the New York Times. But was Mary Pleasant really an associate of John Brown? And did she help him financially, as well as enjoy his counsels and plans the way she claimed? Well, I have my doubts, and I'll share them with you in this episode, which, by the way, I'm recording on October 16th, the 162nd anniversary of the raid upon Harper's Ferry, where Brown seized the Federal Armory as a demonstration which was to begin his anti-slavery movement in the South. Well, that's history, so there's a lot to talk about, and let's get to it. From New York City, this is Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this is John Brown Today. Like other historical epics, the John Brown story has a number of legendary associations based upon later claimants, people who profess to have known and supported John Brown. In a previous season, I discussed the case of the Canadian anti-slavery figure, Alexander Milton Ross, who despite his real anti-slavery stature in Canada, was a complete fraud insofar as his claim to have been a close ally of John Brown. But Ross went to amazing lengths over years to perpetrate his fraud, and ultimately this caught up with him because his elaborate web of lies became more visible over time. Other claims are less developed and much easier to identify as fraudulent, such as a man in the late 19th century who claimed to be the only surviving Harper's Ferry Raider, although he figured nowhere in the story and was able to exploit the relative lack of information that people had at the time. Likewise, there was at least one black person in the early 20th century, and maybe more, who made the newspapers for claiming to have been that black baby that John Brown kissed on the way to the gallows, an incident that we know didn't happen. But some accounts, while not immediately seeming certain, may prove quite valuable. As I've written about in my little book, John Brown, The Cost of Freedom, there was an article written by a former Union soldier named Robert Morris Copeland, published in Putnam's Magazine in 1869, in which Copeland recounted an extended conversation he had had during the Civil War with a black man who had lived in the area of Harper's Ferry. The man he named as Anthony Hunter had given Copeland some interesting information about the readiness of local blacks to support Brown at the time of the Harper's Ferry raid, but that they had withdrawn when he got bogged down fighting in the town. I thought the story was feasible because the author was a bona fide New England figure, and his story was published in what, at that time, was a credible magazine. Copeland had served in the military and was, in fact, stationed at Harper's Ferry. Then, interestingly... I further confirmed the accuracy of his story when I found that Anthony Hunter actually is listed in the 1870 census, a year after the Putnam Magazine article was published, living exactly where he was said to have been living in 1859. I have thus argued that this long-overlooked article verified that John Brown had made a significant impact on the local black community, and that many more enslaved people had turned out to support him at Harper's Ferry, but understandably had backed away when Brown overstayed in town and got cornered. 
Nothing in Copeland's account contradicts the known record. And so, in this case, I think the obscure article, which Boyd Stutler made only passing reference to, has far more historical integrity, but had been overlooked until I broke it in my 2006 book. So, on a scale of 1 to 10 for historical believability, I'd give Copeland's article a 9, and so I used it for my work. I mention the Copeland story because some stories, though apparently obscure, might sufficiently pass muster. On the other end, some stories, whether long and extended like Alexander Ross's Web of Deception or brief accounts of some pretender, are clearly fraudulent and can be thrown out. They don't even score a one, and so they cannot be relied upon in any sense. But some stories may have threads or bits of information that suggest historical value, yet are not entirely reliable and cannot be taken as a whole. Take the case of Hannah Bell Douglas, also known as Jane Fossil, who lived in Camden, New Jersey in the 1890s and kept a small bakery. In a story that was conveyed from a Philadelphia reporter to the Buffalo commercial, Hannah Bell Douglas claimed she was enslaved at Harper's Ferry at the time of the John Brown raid in 1859, having been about 20 years old at the time, and that she was charged with the task of cooking for Mary Brown when the wife came to Harper's Ferry at the time of her husband's execution. Hannibal claimed that Mary Brown was guarded at House's Hotel by nine guards, and that she and Mary Brown were not permitted to speak, although the soon-to-be widow stroked her face in gratitude. She also claimed that after Brown was hanged, many local blacks got pieces of the scaffold. When she spoke to the reporter, she said she had just lost her piece of the scaffold about six months prior. There is good reason to reject Hannibal's claim. She names House's Hotel, which apparently was the Hilltop House Hotel that was built later in 1888. I also don't think Mary was overseen by nine guards, or that she had an enslaved woman assigned to do her cooking for her. Besides, Mary was not alone in Harper's Ferry, but actually was escorted by a number of anti-slavery friends. After the hanging of Brown, she could not have seen pieces of the gallows either, since the gallows were used for the executions of four raiders two weeks later, and then the wood was stored, eventually being used for a domestic purpose, and then deconstructed later when the gallows was refabricated in the 1880s. So the idea that pieces of the gallows were dispensed among enslaved people is simply not the case. I really don't believe Hannah Bell Douglas's story, although it is possible there is some slim truth to the account. Perhaps she was enslaved as a young woman in the area of the raid in 1859. And perhaps she was an eyewitness of Mary's coming to Harper's Ferry on December 1, 1859. Perhaps she even worked in the hotel where Mary was staying. The story's interesting, but it's just too checkered to be trustworthy as a source. So, on a scale of 1 to 10 for historical believability, I'd give Hannah Bell's story a 1.5 or maybe a 2, so I couldn't really use it. In 1950, a peculiar article was published in a Harrisburg newspaper based upon an official Pennsylvania state folklorist, Colonel Henry Shoemaker, in which he discussed Brown's life and activities in Pennsylvania during the months prior to the Harpers Ferry raid. The article is clearly fraught with inaccuracies and errors in recounting the details of the story, from saying John Brown was working as a lumberman to claiming that Brown had become a close friend of Alonzo Potter, who became a leading Episcopal bishop in New York City in the later 19th century. Neither claim is true, and the story has other small details that suggest it is more legend than fact. The problem is that the account has streaks of truth that are borne out by local historians. 
For instance, Shoemaker claims that Brown was active at the small Emanuel Chapel at Mont Alto, Pennsylvania, and that he started a Sunday school there for black children. In fact, one local historian made the same claim based on other grassroots research he had done. It is also quite feasible that Brown was moving about that whole area, scouting it out, and also making inroads into the mountains in that region. One of his pretenses, by the way, when he moved into his Maryland farm, was that he was doing mining in the mountains. Another interesting aspect of Shoemaker's story is the claim that John Brown associated with a local woman named Lovette Bondurant, whom Shoemaker describes as a dark Huguenot girl, who was apparently a religious exhorter of some kind. Shoemaker says she was the stepdaughter of a local charcoal burner, whom he also names. Once more, I found this interesting because in doing research from my first book, Fire from the Midst of You, A Religious Life of John Brown, I found a local historian in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, who verified that a local woman had indeed met Brown at the same little Emanuel Chapel in Monalto, Pennsylvania, and had prophesied to him that he was going to do something in the South to help the slaves, and that he was going to die. The Shoemaker article claims that Lovette Bondurant knew the mountain paths and acted somewhat as a guide to John Brown in learning the mountain area, something that certainly he was interested in doing during the summer of 1859. Now, this account presents an even more difficult status for usability. It is fraught with obvious errors in detail, and yet, in some respects, it seems to have believability and was even verified from different sources by a local historian. In a case like this, the usability factor may be 5 out of 10, and therefore it can only be used with serious qualification. I believe John Brown was all over the vicinity prior to the raid. He was known to start churches and Sunday schools in general, and given his evangelical outlook, that he would do something like this for black children sounds exactly like him. I believe he did have some kind of friendship or acquaintance with a young woman and that she did exhort prophesying or some kind of prediction of Brown's failure. John Brown was not a man given to reading signs. His own son Owen once told him before the raid that he had dreamt of his father standing on the scaffold, but that didn't stop John Brown either. The point is that some stories and claims are flatly false and can be discredited either with immediacy or in the long term. Other stories and claims bear up sufficiently under scrutiny to be taken seriously, and still others present a mixed account. They are too doubtful to take with certainty, yet they offer strands of reasonable and even insightful information that cannot be easily dismissed. When this happens, the biographer has to look closer and try to separate the errors from what may be substantial, and so use the story as a secondary source with notation and qualification, but without totally dismissing it. I believe the same concern applies to the somewhat popular account of Mary Ellen Pleasant, a black woman whose story has been recounted from time to time since the early 20th century as having been a supporter of John Brown. In 2019, under a section called Overlooked, Veronica Chambers' article about Mary Ellen Pleasant appeared in the New York Times with the claim, quote, Born into slavery, she became a gold rush millionaire and a powerful abolitionist, end quote. Chambers' article starts with the following paragraph. When the abolitionist John Brown was hanged on December 2, 1859, for murder and treason, a note found in his pocket read, The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. When the first blow is struck, there will be more money to help, end quote. 
Officials most likely believed it was written by a wealthy northerner who had helped fund Brown's attempt to incite and arm an enormous slave uprising by taking over an arsenal at Harper's Ferry in Virginia. No one suspected that the note was written by a black woman named Mary Ellen Pleasant. End quote. The article itself is based upon a recent book by Lynn Hudson, The Making of Mammy Pleasant, a black entrepreneur in 19th century San Francisco, which uncritically depends upon an untrustworthy interview with Pleasant by a journalist named Sam Davis in the early 20th century. By the way, whites nicknamed her Mammy, so we can dispense with that racist nonsense right away. According to Davis, the aged Mary Pleasant told him that she was the one who gave John Brown, quote, most of the money to start the fight at Harper's Ferry and who signed a letter that was found on him when he was arrested. According to Davis, Pleasant claimed she had given John Brown $30,000, which by today's currency would be the better part of a million dollars. According to Chambers' article in the New York Times, Pleasant's claim vis-a-vis the Davis article got the interest of W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote about her in his 1924 book, The Gift of Black Folk. Du Bois said she was, quote, quite a different kind of woman, and yet strangely effective and influential, end quote. What particularly made Pleasant unusual was that she had ended up in San Francisco and had become wealthy. She was clearly what was called in 19th century terms a race woman, and she had a fascinating life. It's been a good many years now, but in the early 2000s, I was happy to meet Susho Bibbs, a very talented lady who had made the life of Mary Ellen Pleasant a subject of her multi-talented pursuits, from exhibits and lectures to reenactments. Susho published a book called Heritage of Power about Pleasant and her association with Marie Laveau, from whom Pleasant apparently learned Vaudou while living in New Orleans. Now, I cannot enter into the details of Pleasant's overall story. According to Bibbs, Pleasant dictated three sets of memoirs, and the last two were only recently discovered. The first memoir was officially declared lost in 1993 by its owner, but content from that memoir was chronicled by Charlotte Dennis Downs, a daughter of one of Pleasant's close associates. According to Sushil Bibbs, Pleasant's background details are varied in her three memoirs in terms of parentage, birthplace, and year of birth. She seems to have been born into slavery and most certainly found happier times in the later 1820s when she ended up with a Quaker family on the island of Nantucket off the coast of Massachusetts. Bibbs says that Pleasant assisted her husband in underground railroad work on the East Coast between Virginia and Boston, and that after her husband's death, she had to flee westward to escape being captured. She remarried, her second husband being named J.J. Pleasants, a free man of color from New Orleans. The couple moved down to New Orleans, where Pleasant apparently studied Vaudou under Marie Laveau before going off to California. Reportedly, they went to San Francisco, along with many others, as a part of that gold rush. And it was there where she worked different positions, interacted with wealthy people, and learned how to gain profits from investments. By the late 19th century, Pleasant had developed a portfolio that included various businesses, but also may have included brothels. At the same time, Pleasant is credited for some civil rights actions in San Francisco, and clearly she tried to use her resources at times for the cause of black people. Chambers's piece in the New York Times says that the rest of Mary Ellen Pleasant's life was a, quote, zigzag of fortune and power, infamy and blame, end quote. And despite the efforts of some to compare her to Harriet Tubman, Pleasant may have more in common with Harlem's legendary gangster, Bumpy Johnson, 
who was also an unethical figure with an admirable race consciousness. For our purposes, the only real point of consideration is that Pleasant claimed that she knew John Brown and that she had given him a lot of money. She made this claim in her interview with Davis in the early 20th century, and she claimed that when Brown was arrested, he had a note on him in her handwriting, as mentioned, and that she was saved only because the authorities misread her initials. According to the San Francisco Call, in January 1904, just after Pleasant died, her gravestone was even inscribed, quote, she was a friend of John Brown, end quote. The story of her alleged collaboration with Brown and her gift of $30,000 to him has been much publicized over the past century, and more recently, it's been revivified by the piece in the New York Times, and understandably also in some black publications. So what believability rating does Mary Pleasant get on a scale from 1 to 10, as far as I'm concerned? I've got to be honest here. I wouldn't give her claims more than one or two at best, and I've consistently chosen not to include mention of Mary Ellen Pleasant in my writings on John Brown because I don't think she had made a sufficient case for herself, nor do I believe any writer has done so. The most that I will say is that I think it's possible that Pleasant crossed paths with John Brown, or more likely she'd heard about him, read about him, or had some indirect communication with him, perhaps through someone else. I can say up front, that everything else pertaining to Pleasant's claimed connection to John Brown is false. There's not one strand of evidence in all of the primary documentation or even the first biographical works by Redpath and Sanborn, for instance, that Brown had an association with Pleasant. She's not mentioned in his memorandum books where he recorded his correspondence. She's not mentioned in the correspondence of any of his men, especially the letters of John Caggy that have survived, who was Brown's lieutenant at Chambersburg or by John Brown, Jr. Like the faker Alexander M. Ross from Canada, Mary Ellen Pleasant is nowhere to be found in the record. This weighs heavily against her claims in later life to have known him. Pleasant nowhere and no way gave John Brown $30,000. He never had that amount of money, and we would know about it if he had, had been given such an amount. We would know about it from his letters or from the letters or records of his supporters. By the time of the Harpers Ferry raid, Brown was broke, and the only one who rescued him was the latecomer Francis Jackson Merriam, who became a raider and who brought several hundred dollars in gold pieces with him when he belatedly joined Brown's men at the Kennedy Farm in Maryland. It was Merriam who saved Brown, not Mary Ellen Pleasant. Likewise, Pleasant claimed that her note had been found on Brown's person and that she escaped because her initials were confounded. This is fiction as well. No such paper was ever found or mentioned, although it's true that the initials of George Luther Stearns, one of Brown's associates, on some correspondence that was found, were mistaken by Virginia authorities, and this did save Stearns from arrest after the Harpers Ferry raid. So, is there anything commendable on the side of Pleasant's story? Sucho Bibbs has pointed out, and Boyd Stutler knew this in the early 20th century too, that Pleasant and her husband did purchase some property in Chatham, Ontario in 1858, the same place and the same year that Brown had visited there. However, the Pleasant properties were purchased in September 1858, and thus Stutler assumed Pleasant was not in Chatham when Brown was there in May 1858, and we have no evidence otherwise. And since John Brown never returned to Chatham after May 1858, he would have to have met her elsewhere. Yet there is no evidence, or even a suggestion, or even a hint that a meeting elsewhere took place. And as I've said, there is no evidence in anything relating to John Brown that he knew her. 
In the 1930s, Boyd Stutler wrote that he believed Pleasant knew John Brown, but had no part in his affairs as she had claimed. But Stutler grew more cynical after a quarter century of research and correspondence. He came to change his mind, and this is very weighty to me because Stutler has his fingerprints on about everything I've ever dealt with in my 20 years of research on John Brown. Perhaps only once or twice have I found something that Stutler did not at least know about. Positively, of course, W.E.B. Du Bois believed the pleasant story, or so it seems. But sadly, this doesn't mean much because Du Bois's strength as a historian of the antebellum period, especially as it relates to John Brown, was in interpretation, not in research. His wonderful John Brown biography is lyrical and rich as an interpretive framework for understanding Brown, but his research was deficient and flawed. Biographer Oswald Villard took Du Bois to task for these deficiencies, perhaps too harshly, but nevertheless, Villard was not taken in by fakers like Alexander Ross or wannabe John Brown friends like Mary Ellen Pleasant. Villard read the Davis interview with Pleasant in the early 20th century and dismissed it as a complete fraud. It's interesting, too, that when Villard's assistant, Catherine Mayo, was doing all of her amazing field interviews and research for his biography in 1908, she asked Brown's daughter, Sarah Brown, about Mary Pleasant. Sarah, who lived in California and worked for a time in San Francisco, stated that Pleasant's claims were, quote, absolute rubbish, end quote, and that Pleasant herself was, quote, a woman of the worst character, end quote. To be fair, Sarah Brown was too young to know for sure, and we have to consider the fact that she was biased against Pleasant. It's possible, but that doesn't entirely mitigate the fact that Pleasant may have had a bad reputation for making money in unethical ways, too, and there's good reason to think that Sarah Brown knew about that reputation. My own sense is that Mary Pleasant was a shady lady. When I saw Sushil Bibbs in Chatham in 2004, she offered the explanation to me that Pleasant actually had sent the money to Brown, but that it had been stolen by an associate in the East. That's possible, but unless it's verifiable that she sent $30,000, or any amount, it's just not reliable. The idea that the money was stolen to explain why John Brown didn't get the money can't be proven, and it doesn't explain, then, why Pleasant claimed she had given Brown all that money, and she made that claim many years after the fact. It doesn't explain why she fabricated the story about her note being on his person when he was arrested. It's just not believable. I should add, too, that the great black historian Benjamin Quarles didn't believe Mary Pleasant was for real. In his book, Allies for Freedom, Quarles quotes Franklin Sanborn, one of John Brown's closest allies. Sanborn wrote to Villard in 1908 that Pleasant may have given Brown $10 or $100. Quote, but I doubt that, Sanborn said. I looked this up years ago, end quote. Quarles rightly concluded, deft researcher that he was, quote, such a story cannot be used by those who are governed by the rule of credible evidence, end quote. While Boyd Stotler believed that Pleasant had obtained a large amount of money through San Francisco brokers and that she had sailed from New York via Panama on April 5, 1858, he still came to the conclusion that her, quote, whole story rests on her own statements, adding, and I believe that she was a pathological liar, end quote. Furthermore, according to Sushil Bibbs, in 1902, Pleasant wrote, quote, John Brown said too much, and John wrote too much, and there is nothing that men live to regret more than what they write and set their names to. But I never regretted what I did for John Brown or for the cause of liberty for my race, end quote. 
I think this is perhaps the coup de grace. I can say without a doubt that this quotation proves Marianne Pleasant largely, if not entirely, invented her role in the story of John Brown. Anyone who has studied John Brown knows he was reticent to a fault. Brown did not write too much. Indeed, he left no written description of his plans, and if he had written to Marianne Pleasant, where is the record even of his having written the letter, let alone where is the letter in which he says too much to her about his plans? We know that Brown hesitated even to discuss his plans after his trial and death sentence were imposed. He even resented the raider John Cook and others for talking too much after the fact, and he warned his men en route to the gallows not to speak. What did Mary Ellen Pleasant know of John Brown and his plans? I dare say she knew nothing. In light of this, I'd have to agree with Boyd Stutler, who concluded back in 1958, quote, There is no record any place that I have found to connect Pleasant and John Brown, either as a recruiting agent or as a heavy contributor to the cause or even as an operator on the Underground Railway, end quote. For myself, I cannot say with certainty that Pleasant never knew John Brown, but as of 2021, I'd have to say that I doubt she did. Unfortunately, her memoirs are fraught with contradictions in general, her character profile is checkered, and if she was compelled to help the black community with her money, no matter how she had made it, she seems to have lacked the character profile and spirituality of a Harriet Tubman, who walked in the Holy Spirit, and whose association with Brown is documented and believable. Whoever Mary Ellen Pleasant was, she is not a trustworthy figure, and as Benjamin Quarles wrote, her claims cannot be included in the historical record. Even in the digital age, it's interesting that little or nothing has emerged about Mary Pleasant in relation to John Brown. Apart from her own late-born claims, she's invisible in the story. Pleasant should be lauded and credited for the good she did in California, whatever that is, I don't know, and I would not want to deny her the credit she deserves. But she deserves no credit for helping John Brown, and her claims to having enjoyed his counsels and plans make her appear to be a great liar at worst, and certainly a shady figure caught in the light of history without an argument. From New York City, this has been Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this was John Brown Today. <laughs>